0: Well, Merry Christmas everyone. Merry Christmas. What a, what a great service it's been so far. A little bit different with our hymns and readings, but it, it's, it's wonderful to uh, change it up a little bit because we are creatures of habit, amen, we just kind of go through the motions of worship. All right, Tyler's going to sing 17 choruses and, uh, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I couldn't resist. I had to get one before the new year, um, but uh, you know, it's, it's good to change it up because we don't worship because music or anything in what we do and planning makes you worship. You worship because Jesus is worthy. Amen. And so even when you come in, it feels like, man, my week is horrible. I don't even feel like I can worship. We worship. Amen because He is worthy of our worship. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them and grab them. As you're turning, uh, well, we're going to be in various passages. I don't just have one today. But I just want to say to all the kids in the room that there is no kids ministry today. So and parents, let your kids make noises. You know, it's it's the sound of life in our church. Um, So please don't worry about that. It's a shorter message. So we will work through these things. But Today's message is sort of an extension of last week's week's message where we talked about Jesus being our deliverer. And Jesus doesn't just deliver us from our greatest enemies, which is sin and death. He does do that. But he also is delivering us into a relationship with a holy God. He is repairing that relationship, and he delivers us into that. And part of that relationship is that Jesus is now King of, Of your life. Jesus is now the ruler of your life. And that's what we are going to explore today. And I'm going to preach it a little bit differently than I normally preach. Normally, we pick a passage, we work through the verses. Today, we're flying all over the Bible. I like to throw you a curveball, show you that I'm also capable of heresy every once in a while. So, I'm just kidding. I won't go that far. But, but as I stated, I wanted to take a different approach to Christmas this year. And I wanted to point our eyes to who that baby is in the manger Ron was actually even praying or saying this before our time in prayer that we're not just celebrating the fact that God came. We're celebrating the fact that it's setting up for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which is our hope. Which is our salvation. So that has been my goal over these last four weeks. As we started off the series, Pastor Tyler took the first message and he talked about Jesus who dwells with us. God, Emmanuel, God with us. And then we talked about Jesus as our uh, our Redeemer, the one who saves us and then our deliver, or sorry, identifies with us. Then we talked about as a redeemer, our deliverer, and now we're talking about a God who reigns, who rules and reigns, King Jesus. And I know today is Christmas Eve, and we have another service tonight that you are all coming to, I hope, and whatnot, and it's going to be a great blessing, and we have lots on our plate with family and friends and and all the rest, so I'm going to work through this sermon in a timely fashion, so for the next 90 minutes, I'm going to give you 20 points on how to do Christmas right, okay? I'm just kidding. I only do 15 points today. <laughs> no. Uh, but we're talking about a savior who reigns over us. And as I reflected on that fact this week, I reflected on who rules and reigns over us today. People like our federal or provincial or even local government, these are, if you will, types of entities or people who do rule over us. God has delegated them certain types of authority to rule us. And now we choose these people through elections. And I know it feels like sometimes we're choosing from both the apples that fell off the tree and we're just trying to find which one's a little less squishy. Um, You know, the lesser of two evils. Other times, we inappropriately look at government and those running for office as if they were our saviors. Right? We say things like, if we could only get this party elected, if we could only get this individual into office, then all of our problems will be gone. No, they won't. No, they won't. No matter how clean a party looks, no matter how amazing an individual looks, guess what? They're still sinners, and they're still full of sinners, and guess what sinners do best? They sin. They're going to fail you. They're going to leave you high and dry. They're going to underdeliver on their promises time and time again. And what drives this inappropriate view of leadership is that deep down in us as humans, we are designed to want, to desire for a champion. Some of us, we want someone who is going to fight for us, someone who is going to represent us, someone who is going to defend, defend us, someone who is going to protect us, really somebody who is going to champion us. They are going to move us forward. They're going to take care of us. But you see, there is only one champion who can fulfill the list of needs that we have as humans. There is only one champion that is truly good. There is only one champion that is just. There is only one champion that is righteous, and that is Jesus Christ. And this is why we love Christmas. Because what we're celebrating is not the baby per se, but we're celebrating the coming of our champion. The one who is going to rule and reign and champion for us, protect us, fight for us. You see, Christmas, you know this, I don't have to preach this, but you know Christmas is not about the presents, it's not about the meals, or those awkward family get-togethers and reunions that a lot of you have to suffer through years after years, especially if it's with the other side of the family, right? Uh, I'm just kidding. We're celebrating, it's about our champion, God coming and redeeming and claiming and saving and setting you and me, a people apart for himself. You see, in the political realm, we're given, they, they give us so many promises. We get so many individuals coming up and saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, they, and the world presents to us so many champions that say, they're going to be there for you, they're going to protect you, they're going to champion you, they're going to defend us, and they're going to save us. But guess what happens? They fail us because they're human. Again, there's only one true champion. And you see, the wrong king, the wrong champion of your soul will destroy your life. And we gravitate as humans to these deceiving champions that the world puts out or promotes or says is normal. The ki- these kings or champions who we lo- that look alluring to us, we go to these things, the wrong kind of kings, and these kings will destroy you, and they will leave you high and dry, and they will destroy your soul. And the first king or first champion that we run to often is the king of self. Right? The world promotes this all the time. Take care of yourself. Don't worry about anyone else. Take care of yourself. Right? We would rather tell ourselves what to do, and we don't want anyone else telling us what to do. Right? We tend to believe the lie that we no one has the right to speak into our lives or to confront us on issues, and when they do, we become offended, and we push back and say, How dare you? Worry about the plank in your own eye, brother, and not worry about the speck in my own eye. Right? We, we become offended and we push back on the issues. This is my home life. What do you mean? I don't have to obey like my church life. I'm at home. I don't have to act that way. What do you mean there are consequences for my actions? What do you mean I'm supposed to live right and righteously, not just on Sunday or Sunday afternoon, but throughout the whole week, a whole 167 hours of the week? What do you mean I can't talk like that? What do you mean I can't gossip like that? What do you mean? I don't want to be told what to do. We have fundamentally at our core as humans an issue with people giving direction because we want to be our own kings. We want to be the directors of our own lives. But the problem with this is see what Jeremiah 17.9 says. It says that your heart... The core of who you are, remember what the biblical heart is, is your, the core of who you are above all things is desperately sick. It's wicked, some translations say. Who can understand it? So the question is, how can you trust yourself? How can you trust your decisions? How can you trust your choices and that you're following after your own will when at the very core of who you are is deceitful above all things? Some of the worst advice you could follow or the worst advice you could give to someone is, ah, just follow your own heart. Follow your own feelings. So the first champion we see is the champion of self. The second champion that we often put in our lives is our idols. What are the idols in your life? What are the idols that you are inappropriately looking to to bring you comfort and joy, to be your champion? Maybe it's status. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's advancing in your career or having the perfect family or driving the nicest car or living in the biggest house. See, the problem with idols is that they are weak. They are not powerful. They're insignificant and insufficient, and they're not designed to hold your worship. When you put worship on them, be whatever it is, it will crumble. It will fall. And it will fail you. Because the problem with idols in our lives is once we achieve whatever it is that we are idolizing, and you finally get it, guess what? You want more. You're not content. You're not happy. Right? I'm after more money. Well, that's not enough money. I want a bigger house. I I finally get the bigger house. I need more. And we're left with wanting more and more and more and more. That's what idol worship does. It's like salty Lay's potato chips, right? You just can't stop. And it leaves you thirsty. It's like, I I swear they're making the bags with less chips or I'm just eating more. One of the two. I'm blaming it on the bags. But, right, you just can't stop. And that's what idol worship does. It puts you on a treadmill where you're just constantly running in this hamster wheel after things. And once you achieve that thing, you're still empty because it's not designed to fill that hole in your heart. And you keep going more and grander and bigger Things. I got the promotion, but it's still not enough money. I need more. I have the biggest house on the block. It's still not enough, right? We all know people like this, right? They buy cars, they drive them for a year, and then they don't make them feel happy anymore, so they sell that car, buy a new one. I remember when I was buying a car here in town, he was telling me it will scare you how much compounded and and, uh, uh, negative equity that people have on cars because they'll buy a brand new one, trade it in a year, not having paid it off, and then it just keeps adding and adding this debt because it's driven by this need to fill this gap in our lives. And we try to do that with material things. But material things will fail you and will leave you always, 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 always wanting more. We see the dangers of this mindset. Paul puts it in stark contrast in Colossians 3, 5 to 6. He says, put to death. That's how serious this is. He says, put it to death. Don't entertain it. Don't just lock it in the basement. Put it to death. What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he says this, on the count of these things, the wrath of God is coming. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You know this. We have a pure, righteous, holy, just God. We have a jealous God who will not share his glory with another. And when you begin to look at idols in your lives and you begin to ascribe to them worship and glory and honor that is only due to God himself, let me tell you that God will not stand for that. He will not stand for that. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And under that, none of us can stand. So the wrong kings in our lives are our idols, it's ourselves, but we also unknowingly at times look to the enemy as our king. And now what I'm talking about here, I'm talking conceptually as as the way we think and the way we treat others and the way we act. When we act in ways that are not God-glorifying, we are flying the flag once again that he is the ruler of our lives. Look at what 1 Peter 5 says about our enemy. It says, be sober-minded. Be attentive. Be watchful, your adversary, this enemy, it's the devil, and he prowls around like a roaring lion. And what's he doing? He's seeking for you. He's seeking for someone to devour. We don't have a passive enemy who's like, oh, well, it's Christmas tomorrow, I'll take the day off. We have an active enemy who is constantly seeking after you to devour you. Be watchful, church. Be sober-minded. Be attentive. I know sometimes in our Western culture, we we neglect this warning because we we tend to believe this lie that these passages are just weird. This can't be possible. The devil, isn't he just some type of allegory that's meant to scare us or teach us the difference between good and evil? But that couldn't be further from the truth. Just ask anyone who has been on the mission field in this church. They'll tell you. This can't be further from the truth. We are in a spiritual war. That's what the Bible says. We are in a spiritual war, and our fight is not against flesh and blood, but guess what it's against? Powers, principalities, spirits, and it's a spiritual fight. It's not against flesh and blood. No matter how much that neighbor next to you ticks you off, it's not a fight against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual fight. And the fight that we have is a, has a spiritual enemy who is not just looking to hang out with you and corrupt your morals a little bit, make you stumble a little bit off the path. No, he's looking to kill you. He is looking to steal, kill, and destroy you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. He hates you because you're made in the image of God. And remember, this is the very thing that he is aspiring to be, is God, and he failed. He hates you, church. He wants to ruin you. He wants to enslave you, and he wants to deceive you. And here's where it gets scary. Read the book of 2 Corinthians, and it talks about the enemy. And the enemy is able to come to us in the appearance of an angel of light. You know Lucifer is not some red-headed guy with horns running around looking ugly. He's a beautiful angel that God designed, and he can appear to you as that angel of light meaning he looks like the good guy. This is why you'll hear me constantly say from this pulpit, discernment, Christian discernment is not you just knowing right from wrong. That's too easy. We all know right from wrong, but discernment is knowing right from almost right. It looks true. Oh, they're quoting scripture. Oh, they look polished. They look clean, but it's like a cookie that has chocolate chips and one of them is just a piece of dog poo. I had to get one in there for the kids, right? It looks good, but put that sucker in your mouth. It's not going to taste too good. The enemy doesn't just try to deceive us. He looks true and he wants to, he wants to b- deceive you into believing that Jesus isn't the way and the truth and the life. And part of that deception that he uses is fear. And we so often succumb to this fear. He makes us question in fear how I know I'm not the only one when I'm growing in the Lord, when I was growing in the Lord, who laid on my pillow going, am I truly saved? Are you sure, God? Can I really stand before you? Because I have this accuser in my ear, in my mind, saying he will not forgive you because he keeps reminding me just how horrible I am. I know I'm not the only one. He tells us things that like, God could never love you because you keep failing him, or God will never forgive you because that sin is too great, or you just keep committing the same sin and God is tired of it. We fear these things, and this is a tactic of the enemy. He makes us question, does God truly love us? Can we truly trust him? Does he actually accept me and celebrate, as Zephaniah says, sing songs over me, or does he just tolerate me? Am I the kind of person, when he sees me in the grocery store, he's like, oh, go down aisle six. I don't even need anything from aisle six, but I am not talking to Aaron today. I know I see you in the grocery store. You do that to me. It hurts my feelings, but that's okay. I'm just But what does Paul tell us? He tells us that God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of what? A power of boldness right? He gives us an assurance in knowing that our God is the God that saves us, God that holds us, a God that sustains us, and he is the God who will complete the good work that he started. Philippians, where he says that, he's talking about your salvation. That's the only thing in the context that he's talking about. The good works that Jesus has started in your life, which is your salvation, he will bring that to completion, Now, some of you might stumble more than the others in your sanctification process, but he will bring it to completion because Jesus does not lose the ones for whom he died. He doesn't. The devil attempts to steal the life that Jesus has purchased for us. It says that Jesus came to give us life, but not just life. He He came to give us life abundant, and the enemy wants to steal that, and he attempts to do that through lies and through fear and through accusations. What does John eight forty four tell us, right? It tells us that God is, or sorry, oh, caught myself. The devil, the enemy, is a liar. He's the father of lies. And he wants to keep you from living the life that Christ has purchased for you. So you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal with these things? What's the big deal if I make myself the king or if I make my idols the king or if I make the enemy the king? And the last one, again, I'm talking functionally here, looking at the enemy as king through our actions and through our thoughts on how we treat fellow believers and people in the world. What's the big deal if I look to any of these things to rule my life? Well, when you look to anything but Christ to be your king, it will pull you away from God. Now, don't hear me wrong. God doesn't leave you. God never leaves you. He has saved you. He has justified you. He's not going anywhere. He is faithful even when you are not. Think of the story of the prodigal son for a moment. Who left? Did the father or the son? The son. What was the father doing when he saw his son return? He ran to him. God doesn't leave you. It's us who leave God. We run from his goodness. And I'm not talking about here about anything about losing your salvation. Rather, what I'm talking about here, what I'm pulling on here, is that you and I not living the fullness of the life that Christ has purchased for us. We're saved, but we're not living in light of our calling, what Christ has given us. And we're continuing to put on chains and living in a prison cell that Christ has freed us from. I ended our service that way last week, saying a lot of Christians are still just hanging out in the prison cell that Jesus has freed them from. There's no chains on you. The door's unlocked, and you're just sitting there collecting three meals a week or a day. Hanging out. I'm comfortable. I don't mind being under captivity. Jesus has already freed you from it. I love what Thomas Watson wrote. He said, He who rightly applies Christ puts these two together, Jesus and Lord. Christ Jesus, my Lord, Philippians 3.8. He will never be a priest to intercede unless, hear this, your heart is the throne where his, his, he sways his scepter. A true applying of Christ is when we so take him as a husband that we give up ourselves to him as Lord. Jesus is Lord. We talk a lot about Jesus as our Savior. We talk a lot about Jesus as our Deliverer. We talk a lot about Jesus as a Redeemer, but Jesus is also our king. Jesus is our champion. Jesus is our lord. And with that ruling over us comes obedience. And this obedience is not just an empty uh, ritualistic obedience, but it's an obedience that is based on the love of, uh, of the love for God and his love for us. As Watson said, that we take him as a husband, meaning between you and Christ there is supposed to be in an intimacy, a desire, a closeness between you and Christ. That I love God. That I want to please God with how I live. I want to live the best way that I can in light of what he has done for me. Not so I'm more accepted by God, because you are completely accepted by God. But that I live in light of what he has done for me. Because I love him and because his ways are perfect. We should get our, subs- our, our, our prescription of how to live life by the one who designed life. His ways are perfect. His statues are good. They are sweet and they are life-giving. Right? Lord, you are more sweeter than honey, right? More precious than gold, oh, how the song goes. His statues are good and they are sweet and life-giving. You see, the wrong king of your life will destroy your soul. But here on Christmas, we celebrate our promised king, our champion that was promised throughout the Old Testament and pointed to on every page. Right, just look at David for for a moment. We talked about last week Jesus being in the line of David. But remember David as an individual for a moment. David was the champion for his people. When the Israelites were cowered in fear in front of Goliath, when Saul, the king, who was supposed to be the champion, right? The world promises a lot of kings. He was supposed to be a champion, but he showed his true colors, and he hid from Goliath as well. What did David do? He went forward. David went forward and attacked. He defended and conquered Israel's enemy. He was their champion. And for us, Jesus, because David is just a foreshadowing of Jesus right? Because Jesus is the greater David. He's the perfect David. He's not going to sin with uh, Bathsheba or anything like that. Jesus is perfect. He is righteous. And Jesus, when we cannot defend our greatest enemy or, or, or defeat our greatest enemies, which is sin and death, when we cower in fear, when we are paralyzed by fear, knowing that we can't save or redeem ourselves or make ourselves righteous in God's eyes, Jesus, our champion, steps forward defending and defeating the adversary, which is sin and death. And he makes us righteous. You and I, sinners, he makes us righteous before a holy, holy, holy God. Jesus is the son of David. If you can just switch me back to the next slide here. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government... "...shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of who? David. And over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this." So the first thing we see in this Isaiah passage is that this king who is Jesus is a gift. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. God willingly gave of himself, he humbled himself, he took on flesh to champion for his people, to save his people, to redeem his people, and to claim his people back to himself. Our promised king, in light of this passage, is a giver. He gave of himself. But the false kings that we follow after in our lives, these deceptive kings, well, they don't give. Rather, they take. They steal from us the joy, and they enslave us back to themselves so we're dependent on them and in need of them. But our promised king, in contrast, is a sovereign king over all nations, while the wrong kings in our lives, well, they're just flying by the seam of their pants. They're just learning as they go. And the only power they have is the power that you give to them. Jesus, going to those titles there in Isaiah, he is our wonderful counselor. While these other kings, well, they just lack wisdom. Jesus is our mighty God, while these other kings are just weak. Jesus is our everlasting father, loving us, being merciful to us, embracing us, while these false kings, these wrong kings, all they do is oppress us. Jesus is our Prince of Peace, seeking to reconcile us to God with these, other, with these other kings. All they do is create conflict, and they stir up conflict with ourselves, with people around us, and with God. Jesus is everlasting. Jesus' kingdom knows no end. These other kings and their kingdoms, well, they're just temporal, and they're overthrown. They're cast aside, and they die you see our king has arrived and it's jesus we have this humble knowing wise king we have this powerful loving and forgiving king we have a sinless and eternal king who is a champion for us and has defeated our sin and our death and has conquered our greatest enemy and is right now seated at the right hand of the father and guess what he's still doing he's interceding on our behalf meaning he's continuing to champion for for us. He never stops. He always continues to intercede on our behalf. You see, our typical response to a king is rebellion and resistance. We are influenced by this perverse idea of the American dream or the Western dream where I'm free to do what I please and nobody's going to get in my way or tell me what to do, and I don't care how many people I have to bulldoze to get there. And as Westerners, we don't like the idea of being ruled. Just look to our southern neighbors, for example. Last time a king tried to rule them, they threw him a little tea party, right? Sent them back to England. And this spills over into our relationship with God. And I think we tend to, as North Americans, fail to grasp what it means to have Jesus as the Lord over our life. Because to have Jesus as Lord over your life is countercultural, because of our pride, because of our independence. We want to be able to rule ourselves. We want to make decisions. So what does it mean as I close that Jesus is Lord? It means that your whole life, my whole life, both my private, both your private and public lives, both what's seen and not seen is to be full of obedience to God and wrapped in or baptized in worship. Again, I'm not talking about cold, ritualistic obedience, but an obedience that is derived from love. We are to obey Christ in all things. And our obedience, hear this, I'm going to preach this to the day I die, your obedience does not earn your salvation or contribute to anything for you becoming saved. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing. We are justified by God and His grace as a gift. It is all God's doing. It's Christ's perfect obedience, not your obedience. It's Christ's obedience that has obtained for us forgiveness of all of our sins and benefits of our salvation. We are saved by being united to Christ by the Spirit and by trusting in Him alone for our salvation. Genuine obedience, your genuine obedience, is the offering that we give in gratitude to God because He has already done it all for us. He has already championed for us. He has already saved us, and we are empowered by His Spirit. And when we are empowered by His Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit begin to be displayed. And all of this should lead to worship. This should all lead to a time of just praising God as we gather together, especially here on Sunday. I love when you read the resurrection account and the two Marys go there and the angel says, no, you're going to meet him. And then he shows up and what do they do? They grab upon his feet and they worship him. That's our only response. We worship God on Sundays, but not just on Sundays, throughout the entire week. And even considering tomorrow as we zero in and we remember and we celebrate the coming of our Savior, the first advent of our Lord, our God, our champion, our Jesus was born to die for us. And now he sits ruling and reigning and defeating our enemies, defeating all of our foes. And we worship him and we praise him and we adore him. We don't just come on Sunday morning. Don't come on Sunday morning to just go through these empty motions of church. Don't waste your time doing that. But come really seeking to worship God. It's the only response. It's the only thing we can give. And that's going to look different for all of you. But come with a heart of worship. Scripture talks about this in Revelation. It says a word, and I'm going to say it very carefully. But it says, We should all lay prostrate before the Lord. Say that very slowly when you're public speaking. We're going to lay prostrate before the Lord, meaning we lay ourselves out. We bow down before him as king, and we worship him as our God. And as we look to his second coming, what a glorious day that will be, the second advent of our Savior. Unless you're a dispensationalist, then you think there's two, but ignore that. There's only one. He's coming again. What do we do now? Well, We hope. We hope. That's why I order the candles the way I do. You can go to all these different tra- uh, traditions and they order them all differently, but I love ending with the candle of hope. As I wrote to you in a, basically a book in this FBC Weekly this last week, we are awaiting a people between the two advents He has come and he's coming. And now we sit and we hope because he is who he says he is and we trust that he is our God and we pray that he would come and correct all the wrongs and make all things right. And as we wait, we proclaim. We're not passive. We proclaim the gospel. We share the good news with those around us because there are many who don't know Christ in our lives who are left trembling before him. We all have people who don't know Jesus in our life, be it a coworker, a neighbor, a family member, maybe even your spouse. And you need to be proclaiming Christ. We have a great joy. We have a great hope. And we are called to share it. I love Matthew 28, right? It says, go therefore... Into all to make uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, right? Be obedient to all that I have taught and commanded you. And then he says, behold, I'll be with you until the end of the age. Church, your champion doesn't leave you. I know you've had many people in your life who said they'll be there for you and have failed you. And maybe that was a father, a mother, a husband, a wife. Somebody has left you and abandoned you. But our champion does not leave us. Our champion does not forsake us. But the wrong kings in our life, they will destroy you and leave you worse off than when you went to them. But our right champion, he restores our relationship with our God. Our right champion delivers us. He saves us. He redeems us. And one day he will come again and receive us into his arms. Amen? Amen. What a glorious, wonderful day that will be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, O Lord, for this truth, that you are a God who reigns over us, that you, Lord, don't look from your high throne of heaven and frown upon us, but you said, they can't do this on their own, and you've humbled yourself, and you've come, and you've dwelled with us, and, Lord, you identified with us, and you delivered us into a relationship with a holy God, where you serve as king. Father, teach us to obey all that you have taught us. Teach us, Lord, to see you as king and how that changes how we speak and treat others, that changes the decisions we make in life because we know we are completely satisfied by the one thing that never leaves us thirsty but cleanses and clenches all of our thirst. Praise you and thank you, O Lord. And thank you, Lord, for these wonderful kids who did such an amazing job through this sermon. Bless them and bless those parents who have three new gray hairs, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. The worship team can come and close us off in a